Yes, I know, everybody's excited, I know, but it wasn't the Super Bowl. No, it, it just seemed like the Super Bowl. No, it, it was it was one game, and there's another one tonight. Oh, hi, it's Pete Pomisano here on RLTP's Off-Road with another exciting episode. This week, Michael Mitnick. Now, who, who is Michael Mitnick, you might ask? Well, there's a tie-in. There's a brand tie-in because Michael Mitnick is the brilliant playwright who wrote the play Mysterious Circumstances that is opening this week at RLTP, Road Less Traveled Productions, on the theater in 456 Main Street. You can get your tickets online. What's Mysterious Circumstances about? Well, I'll tell you more at the end of the podcast. But in the meantime, let me tell you a little bit about Michael Mitnick because he may not be a household name to you, but I did a lot of research on him. And he is a screenwriter, a TV writer, a film producer, and many other things. I mean, listen to some of these credits this guy's got. I mean, 10 years ago, he was given the Visionary Playwright Award from Theater Masters. And then in 2013, he was named by Variety as one of the 10 screenwriters to watch. And then in 2014, he co-wrote the musical Fly By Night and was nominated for four Drama Desk Awards, including Best Musical. Uh, he wrote The Seagull, which played in Buffalo recently, and I saw and thoroughly enjoyed. And then he was a writer on the TV series Vinyl on HBO, if you remember that show. And you hear me say this in the interview, but one of my favorite movies about Tesla called The Current War. He was the producer and writer. His theater work includes, oh, so many plays, uh, Scotland PA, Sex Lies of Our Parents, The Happiness Trilogy, there's a lot of them. And, well, anyway, this guy is the real deal. And he's talking to me, Pete Pomisano, here on Off-Road. So let's not waste any more time. Please welcome Michael Mitnick to RLTP's Off-Road. Welcome to Off-Road, Michael Mitnick. Thank you. You have no idea what a pleasure this is, having lived with your words now, for two and a half weeks. Uh, I'm playing Conan Doyle. Oh, fantastic. And the chief investigator later on. And we are having a ball with this play. You know what? I, I want to get into mysterious circumstances in some detail, but really, I just want to get to know you a little bit. For those who don't know who Michael Mitnick is, you have quite an impressive resume. I'll start with one of my favorite TV shows on HBO, that did not last, sadly, but I enjoyed it because it was from my era. It was called Vinyl. And you were a writer on that show with uh, Bobby Cannavale, and I think uh, Ray Romano was in that show. He was indeed, and he is a, a pleasure of a person. Yes, I've heard that. But you were more than just a writer on that. Were you not like an executive story editor? Yeah, but it, it's really they just have different terms to cover your your quote unquote level. But yeah, <laughs> I, I was a writer, and then I they said dispatch you to the set as a little spy, <laughs> and then if if the actors veer too far from the script, then you have to call up the head writer and you say, "Is this okay?" Yeah, they're saying this now. Is that all right? Exactly, <laughs> and then. You're not going to believe this, but one of my favorite movies was The Current War. No. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds crazy, and I only saw it on HBO or something. I didn't see it in the theater. But being from Buffalo, oh. and we're right down the street from Niagara Falls, of course, which, of course, is where Tesla did all of his experimenting and came up with the idea of AC alternating current. And this movie is about the war between the AC current and DC current and which one would be the standard. And, and what a cast in that. For the current war, you were the writer and, and you work with Martin Scorsese and Benedict Cumberbatch and Nicholas Holt and <laughs> Michael Shannon. I'm just, I'm just naming a bunch of names here to be a name dropper, but I love the movie. Thank you. It was such a cool idea. Was that an idea that was exclusively yours? I'll tell you the truth of it. It was something that I started in 2008. That's right. I was, it was actually my first day of drama school at Yale Drama School. 
And the night before, the head of the program, marvelous playwright named Richard Nelson, said to the three of us, bring in uh, just a scene from someone from history. And so I remember sitting at like my desk and my boxes weren't unpacked. And I thought like history, that's pretty broad. <laughs> so I don't know. I flashed back to like my trips as a kid and we went on a lot of driving vacations. I'm from Pittsburgh and Edison's factory was in the vicinity. So I typed in Thomas Edison and to the computer and I read, you know, the basic bio and I thought, you know, this is sort of interesting. Maybe there's a way to spin it. And then I got to a section called the war of the currents that said that over a 13 year period, Thomas Edison entered into a dirty fight with George Westinghouse over the standard of electricity to be used in the world, which resulted in Edison creating a smear campaign involving a stolen AC generator, and he proved its lethality by connecting it to dogs, cats, horses, cows, gorillas, a circus elephant, and uh, eventually a person. And so I just leaned back and in my Ikea chair and just thought, like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And I, I started writing it as a musical. We did it with the undergraduates, or no, with the, with the acting students on that one. And then when I graduated, we did it at a workshop at the theater, Manhattan Theater Club. And the person... But still as a musical? That's, I mean, that's... Correct. Still as a, still as a musical. I had to then, you know, kind of hide its indecent past when it needed to become a, a, a serious movie, <laughs> quote unquote. But... They really hated it as a musical. Oh, no. And so, really? <laughs> and so... We've got some alternating current right here for you. Oh, it was slightly better. It was slightly <laughs> better, but not much. And then I what bet. happened, I needed to make a living. And I got a, a film agent. They kind of match you up with the agents in other areas. And he said, why don't you take that Edison musical thing and make it into a movie? And I said, sure, except I didn't think the songs could hold water and and thus became like the first 168 page draft of that, which is very different, although it had a much longer Buffalo sequence and a fully different third act conclusion that I wrote and in 2011 and then we finally finished the film in 2019. Right. So a very long process on that one. And the fact that it came from an assignment from Yale Drama School. And then you're thinking back to your visit to Edison's. That's, it was just a fascinating story. And I don't know how much of it is true, or I really don't care. It was just such an interesting story. It made me realize that writers do a ton of research. I mean, people don't realize how much work and research you have to put in for a historical piece like that. Oh, yeah. Especially if you don't have, um, I mean, luckily there were biographies of Edison and Westinghouse and pieces that were written about people who worked for them that were all in the public domain. But a lot of it became, you know, thank goodness the university had an amazing library, but it became about, I had to do my own primary research because I didn't have a, a really terrific book because there have been many, many books about it. but About the War of the Currents? About the War of the Currents. And even along the way, I found out that one of my favorite filmmakers, writers, and directors is Robert Zemeckis, who did, you know, among many things, Back to the Future. Yes, Forrest Gump, too. Forrest Gump, absolutely. And uh, I was meeting with someone, and he goes, you want to see Robert Zemeckis wrote a script for a whole movie about Tesla? And I had to do everything within me not to take it because I was still <laughs> in process with trying to get my movie made. But, I mean, it's a great story. Yeah, it really is. And just that, I mean, I don't want to get too much more into it, but the fact, you know, the argument sure. over DC current versus AC current and DC couldn't travel far over electric lines, so it couldn't travel from Niagara Falls to wherever. But AC current was extremely dangerous, which you know, uh, if you put your finger in light socket, you know, 
and it was used for an electric chair. Exactly. And as you said, to prove their point, they electrocuted all these animals. But it, yeah, well, anyway, I have this, well, if you know anything about me, and you probably don't, but as an actor, I have this sort of unnatural reverence for writers and the written word. I can tell from your podcast. <laughs> well, it just fascinates me how somebody, in your case, a very young man, how somebody gets into writing you said you started, well, you were from Pittsburgh, you said, originally. Did you have any interest in your younger years, in your earlier years, in high school, grade school? I mean, what was it that sparked an interest in, in writing for you? I guess. I mean, did you have like an English teacher yeah. who, when you turned in an essay, uh, said, oh, this is really good, Michael, you should look at being a writer? I mean, this happened to me once, so that's why... I tried writing and it absolutely went nowhere, but that's another story that we get into another time. You know what did it for me was uh, I grew up, as many people did, in the age of Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Ah. I didn't even realize that the show was shot in my hometown of Pittsburgh. Well. And that was really the only bit of Hollywood, if you want to call it that, <laughs> that was around. And when I was in high school, I interned for uh, WQED Pittsburgh and Mr. Rogers and kind of seeing how everything was put together, it both demystified it and then romanticized it to this. I mean, I was eating lunch on the set of my childhood fantasy wow. with all, you know, everyone was gone mm -hmm. and then... I, would, I don't know, I'd be sent down to get more printer cartridges and then be Mr. Rogers in the elevator. And he would say, how are you today, Michael? And I would say, I'm doing fine. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. It just, <laughs> it, it, it made it magic and it made it not just something that happened in New York City or especially Los Angeles far, far away. I thought maybe, maybe the way to go is theater because that's what, you know, you do in high school, you do theater and that's what started it. So it sort of demystified it because you saw how the sausage was made, so to speak. And you sort of saw all these things going on behind the scenes. And I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, but was there a staff of writers, not just Fred Rogers writing? The thing is that he actually may have written his all of his own episodes and he wrote like the music, his own music. Wow. So he was Holy very cow. complete. Yeah. But what it did do is it, yeah, it showed me how this show with, with a combination of puppets and, and fantasy and reality were made. And so yeah, I could save up and get an eight millimeter camera and my friends and I started to make student films and submit those to, you know, the student level competitions. But then once I became in, in college, you know, you got to really rope in a lot of your friends <laughs> to make a student film and they call in a lot of favors, a lot of favors and, you know, raise some money. It was faster and cheaper and kind of more fun to write plays or or dark and dirty musicals with the lampoon and put those on quickly and move on. And you were with Fred Rogers when you were in your teen years, right? 15, 16 years old. Yeah, I was an intern there when I was, I think, 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. So then you go to college and, and as you said, you already mentioned, worked at the Harvard Lampoon for a while on the staff there. What were you studying in college? Or did this lead to, you know, at some point all of this means that, well, I'm, I guess I'm going to get an English degree. Is that it? I had a, an incredible experience on a train after newly admitted students weekend where i found that people weren't generally friendly and that the the classes were i don't know kind of generic or it wasn't a positive experience and i was so surprised and i met a guy on the who was sitting across the aisle and i think he saw my student folder and he goes you're gonna go to harvard and i said indignantly i'm not sure <laughs> and then he goes, he goes, why? You know, what's wrong, Sonny? And I was like, I don't know. Like people weren't 
the other kids weren't like very friendly and everyone seemed kind of miserable and he's like yeah that's the point he's like because i went there <laughs> and he's told me that he wrote for a television show and before that letterman and all these things that i made my ears perk up and he said the point of the school was not the classes but it was the extracurriculars that were so well funded and had like a crazy alumni network even though i you know i did I I didn't end up, you know, following the lampoon to or the Simpsons train or anything like that. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. very fun to go to those dinners and have it be one hundred different writers from the Simpsons and listen to, and just sit there quietly and listen to them all try to one up each other and to see who they all really hated. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like all graduates of Harvard. And, yeah. And, and, and this gross entanglement, but I, I ended up kind of shaking out clean into theater. And, and for some reason that actually appealed to you, it didn't turn you off the writing aspect of it. You, you sort of actually enjoyed these stories of the camaraderie with other writers backstage at Letterman and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. It it made it. I think what it did is it is it further demystified it. And Harvard did do stuff that a lot of schools do, but they brought in. I remember when I showed up, I, uh, there was this wonderful fellow Tom Lee who worked in the office for the arts, and he said, "Write down on a list everyone that you'd like to meet." And I thought, like, this is this is intense, you know. With and I just wrote down a list of all all of these different Broadway songwriters, because at the time I thought that's kind of what I mainly wanted to do actually was write songs. And I was taking a lot of music courses and like by George, he brought in every single one off the list except Stephen Sondheim who almost came. Wow. But it was, you know, you don't expect to have that experience. You don't expect to, to be able to suddenly spend an afternoon talking to Randy Newman, who's, very very generous and kind and giving advice on like you know if you did want to move into the world of film scoring like this is kind of what it looks like and you get to see it's really up up close and you get to sort of get the sense that people a little bit older than you are making some headway and it doesn't feel impossible I see. Because there is a struggle. And you were getting sort of a background. A glimpse yeah. Yeah behind the scenes glimpse of all these different aspects of the entertainment industry. And originally, you thought you'd be a lyricist and a composer? Yeah, yeah. I I grew up playing the piano. And when I was at Mr. Rogers, I was really interested in the songs. Ah. And uh, a goal of mine, weirdly enough, was I wanted to write songs for Sesame Street and that tradition of songwriters. And I wanted to write Broadway scores. So in college, I did a lot of music stuff, and I wrote a couple of musicals. And then when I graduated, I moved to New York, but I just did all kinds of stuff, writing scripts, writing humor pieces, sending them into the New Yorker and getting rejected, trying to get my songs you know, into Sesame Street, but no one would give me the right directions. And um, I don't know, trying to write on TV shows, and, and it really just turned out that that I got into grad school, and that was the only option. So that's what I did next. So what degree did you exit Harvard with? I exited with an English degree. Oh, it was an English degree. Yeah. So then you attend Yale School of Drama. Right. And that's where you really refine this skill and become more focused, shall we say, on being a script writer, a screenwriter, a playwright. How did that work? It was a playwriting program, and it had a list of graduates of people that I respected. And I, I noticed that you know a lot of them were really serious writers, and so I thought, man, I got to be a serious writer. Oh yes. So I wrote a like my impersonation of what I thought like an important play was, and submitted it. Uh, and I was shocked when I got the interview. And during the, I remember like walking into the room and thinking, you know, don't mention all the musical classes that you've been taking and all of the internships you're doing with songwriters. And I sat across from Richard Nelson and I said, yeah, I'm not really writing musicals. I'm, I'm writing these plays. And then he's sitting there quietly. And when I finally stopped talking, he said, that's interesting because I got a copy of your college thesis 
that's a musical and I want more people to be writing musicals around here. Huh. And so I did a, a total 180 and was like, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> and then it was what it ended up being was a mix. And the school later transitioned to Paula Vogel, but it was a place where they, we did screenwriting, acting, playwriting, TV writing, lyric writing, libretto writing, lighting, uh, set design, bartending, painting. <laughs> I mean, they really just make you do everything, I guess, except directing, which is odd. But uh, anyway, so that was that was valuable sometimes. Hmm. Well, just a quick little throwback here. When you were little Mikey playing the piano, were you composing <laughs> even then? No, not not You're back home in Pittsburgh. No, or you were just studying the piano, learning it. I was studying the piano. My older sister played piano, and then she started to compose. And I'm a competitive person, and so I think that's where I started to do it. And then uh, it was more fun to play, you know, the Beatles than some some weird simple piano song, uh-huh. or to play Irving Berlin or Frank Lesser or stuff like that. Yeah, and it yeah. just shocked me that people actually had to come up with these these tuneful songs. And I w- I thought like, oh, can I try to you know, do this too. Were your mother and father, uh, were your parents involved in the arts at all? They probably tried to tune it out because that piano <laughs> was next to the kitchen and it just kept... Oh yeah, that, that's <laughs> it, was, it was trial by error. No, I don't... I, my my grandmother played the piano, but my, my father's a political scientist, my mother's a librarian. Uh, so I think it it was just trying to trying to piss them off in a responsible, nice Jewish kid way. I'm going into the arts. You <laughs> yes. Know, I, I suppose to I'm going into crime or dr- <laughs> drugs or I guess there's no difference. Yeah. <laughs> or being a doctor, yeah. which is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, They wanted me to, except they were afraid I was going to get sick. That's how Jewish it was. <laughs> wow. That is. <laughs> so I also know that you worked at the Atlantic monthly for a while. When was that? And, and, what exactly did you do there? Was that during the Yale years? That was in between college and grad school. I got a, a job creating, they were rebranding the magazine, moving it from Boston to DC and trying to launch it as something that was less in the Harper's tradition and more in the New Yorker meets economist kind of thing. Hmm. And they wanted a publicity thing. And so the uh, they hired me to come up with what ended up being the world's largest crossword puzzle for Times Square that people would play via their computer every day at the same time to solve crossword puzzles that then would spell out Atlantic Monthly. Oh, and it was a it was a steady gig, <laughs> and I took <laughs> and I took the train to New York once a week to be part of something called the BMI Musical Theater Writing Workshop, which a, a lot of uh, much better songwriters have gone through. That kind of teaches you a, a traditional foundation of songwriting. People that that wrote uh, "Once on the Island in Ragtime," uh, "Avenue Q," hmm. "Little Shop of Horrors." Those those teams. At one time in 2014, you had a musical that won a Drama Desk. It, it was nominated at least for Best Musical called "Fly by Night." Was that entirely your creation, your music and book and everything? No, that one I shared credit with two other writers. It was an odd scenario where the very first, you know, we were at we were at drama school and we started writing it, and so there were all these theater management students, meaning we had to just create a contract of how to participate, and so we didn't know quite what to do because. I composed and I wrote lyrics and my friend did others, you know, parts of other things. So we just said, we'll all do all three, even though what ended up uh, happening was, was uh, two of us did the songs and one of us mostly did the the story. Oh, I see. Well, that was just an aside. I'm wondering also if there's any connection in composition, like when you're writing music, how does that compare to a play? Because it has a beginning, middle and end. Is there any correlation? Is there anything you could say where, you know, this helped me with playwriting or it's so completely different, they're not connected at all? Yeah, 100%. Songwriting and lyric writing forced on me uh, writing concisely. Uh, Um, If there's a melody, 
I'm only given a certain number of notes in order to put an idea on top of and develop it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly, writing a screenplay, you know, they'll try to, when I say they, I mean producers. Sure. uh, we'll, We'll try to cut every single line that they can to make the day shorter, to make the day cheaper. And so it becomes, how much of this do you really need? And sometimes they'll cut away far too much and you only end up with the what's absolutely necessary is plot for getting that, you know, a couple lines create atmosphere, character, color, jokes, or, you know, whatever. But that kind of, oh my gosh, I only get a a page and a half because they have to move the camera and we lose the location carries over a bit to playwriting where I go, okay, what's, what's this character saying here? Um, And how, how can it be said clearly and how can it be said concisely? Yeah. Yes. I was just going to say concision and you learn how to say a lot in a short bit. Correct. Well, I'd like to, move on to mysterious circumstances, if you don't mind. Sure. Because uh, I've been living with it for a while now, and it's a very funny play. And very, it's funny, it's dark, it's mysterious. Ah, I have so many questions about it, but I guess I need to start with, it came from an article that was written about a true story about Richard Lancelin Green, the world's foremost scholar on Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. And this article appeared in The New Yorker, by David Gran, and you took this article, this true story. Was it, again, like the current war, was it your idea to use this article as the basis of a a full-length play? Was it someone from the Geffen Theater, where the show was first produced, who said, hey, can you do something with this? I mean, what made you say, I'm going to take this article, this true story of a man's death, and turn it into a play? The Geffen, and specifically the artistic director, and the director of the play, Matt Shackman, had secured the rights to David Grant's article, Mysterious Circumstances, from The New Yorker, mm-hmm. that covers the obsession and the, the death and the, the lost materials, the, the, that, that angle of the play. And there, I think, I think Matt met with two or three different writers. This is very unusual in plays. Uh, I guess now there are a couple plays that are adapted from books in recent memory, but it's something that happens far often, more often with musicals, uh, where they have, say, an underlying movie or something. Okay. But my agent knew about this job and said, you know, this is Sherlock Holmes. This is about a guy who gets really obsessed with things. And this is can kind of go in many different directions. I read the piece and I fell in love with it. And then the more I learned about it, the more I thought, you know, there could be these other elements, kind of two other stories uh, that are going on along with the with the Lancelin Green story. And then I pitched that to the Geffen. Uh, they took a chance. I had the job. And then we did the, the, the first production there. And I believe yours is the second. Yeah, it's only the second production that I know of or, or that you know of. Yeah. So... So, and again, I'm living with this every night, so there's so many questions rolling around in my head. So the idea came from the article, but you're planned because it takes place in two different time periods and three very different major locations mm-hmm. and even more little locations within it and a variety of other characters. It's, it's, it's not a typical Sherlock Holmes I mean, when you see the words Sherlock Holmes, inevitably there are certain assumptions about the kind of story it's going to be and the the mystery that's going to ensue and so on. You know, that kind of a thing about deductive reasoning, etc. Then it was your idea to bring in, to sort of combine the two worlds, the Sherlock Holmes world and the Richard Lancelin Green world and Conan Doyle's world for that matter. So they sort of mesh and overlap and, and, and we're jumping back and forth. Yeah, the scenes sometimes are are a page long or less, and then all of a sudden you're in this office, and then all of a sudden you're out in the streets, and then you're back in a different office, and 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 when you look at wrote that, I mean it's a very cinematic script, right? Did you have any concerns about the fact that some director is going to have to f- figure out mm. how to make 
this scene shift and character shift, and there's a multitude of characters played by six or seven actors, mm -hmm. most of them doubling or tripling. And is there ever any concern on your part that, well, maybe I'm asking too much for this to happen on stage? <laughs> or do you just say, I'm going to write it the way I see it and let them figure it out? Because you've got all this stuff that's magical and, and you know, a box turns into this and then this happens and then that happens. And then on the stage, there's a waterfall. And then as we're reading it, we're going, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my question is, what's your concern at the beginning or is there no concern? No, that's a that's a very fair question. While it's being written, I have an idea of the production in mind. Something I'll do with this with with mysterious circumstances is is actually kind of write out the characters and and plot them out, knowing who do I have on stage, who's doubling, and it's something. It's a lesson that I took from Stephen Sondheim that when he was writing, I think it was Maria for the West Side Story, uh, he gave it to Jerome Robbins to stage. And Jerome Robbins is like, what am I doing with with Tony here? And Sondheim's like 26 years old. And he's like, well, he's, you know, he's singing about how much he loves Maria. And Jerome Robbins is like, yeah, but what is he doing? And Sondheim's like, I was well, walking, maybe walks forward, maybe he changed the scenery. And Robbins is like, no, just like, what I need to know what is changing, what's happening over the course of it. And so what I'll generally do is have an idea in my head of how it works on, how it can work on stage. And maybe it's an idealized scenario where I'm saying I get three, I know I can have three discrete spaces at the same time. I know that um, I need uh, Sherlock, that's a actor playing Sherlock, who's also going to play Richard Lanceland Green, but I know that I can have him doubled for three lines, pre-record his dialogue, and then have that actor shuffle behind a backdrop to suddenly pop up on the other side. And that's part of the fun. But none of it was meant to be 100% impossible. Some of the, the crazier requests, like a waterfall, I figured would be done just differently in every production, perhaps not done at all. But it's the idea of, I think these things can be creatively uh, devised but I don't want this to be, you know, a real traditional plotting murder mystery. I want it to be constantly popping all over the place, popping through time and having when Richard dies, Sherlock has to go on the case to solve it. And when a, a real event that happens with your character, Conan Doyle, where he stopped writing Sherlock Holmes for a series of years because he was pissed off that these quote unquote trivial stories would become his legacy, that that absence of new Sherlock stories would have an impact in the meta world of Sherlock and Watson when they go, hey, why are there no more crimes being <laughs> devised? That's right. Well, they say, go, oh, maybe the world has changed. Maybe there are no more crimes <laughs> being committed. Yeah, Everybody's <laughs> gone good. No, not possible. Guess that's happened. Can't be it. <laughs> well, now, listen, just to get technical about the script itself, because we're working with like a manuscript. It's it's full-sized, but it's not the published script yet. It hasn't been published by one of the famous houses. Now, did you write all the stage directions? Are they your words or are they, did you work in con congruence with the director or were, is everything in the script your concoction or because in scripts you get that have been on Broadway for years, a lot of the stage directions are notes from the stage manager from the first production, things like that. Oh, yeah, right. From, you know, this is how it was done. Is everything in our script a Michael Mitnick creation? Like when it says, suddenly there's music. <laughs> it's, is that you or is that something that the stage manager or the director or somebody wrote in as part of that first production? Every word that's in the script is mine, and I, and I write. But definitely, some of Matt's ideas were osmosed and put into the script. So much of that of what's in the script that you have, yes, is shaped by Matt Shackman. Because while I did come up with where the characters go and what they're doing, Matt had a different idea. I see. And a lot of times, you know, it was just way better. 
But what I wanted to do, and maybe to the detriment of a future production, was kind of leave the script in a bare level where it says what the, you know, what the effect is, but maybe not the method. So I think there are probably way fewer stage directions than normally would come with it. Because what we could have done, for instance, and maybe should have done as a supplement, even if I don't want it to wreck the rhythm of the of the reading experience of the of the play, is is you know this is this is how yeah, we did right. all the magic tricks, you know this yeah, is how it can be done. You, you actually wrote down, and then somehow this happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, in other words, I don't know how you're going to do yeah. this, but this is the way I envision it, or this is the way Matt saw it or made it happen on stage and now it's uh, your problem to figure it out yeah so you put it in the script and it becomes part of the bible there are many different ways to make make a box disappear to cut someone in half or to and and it's all going to be dependent on the budget and the director and the size of the stage and what mm. the stage looks like and where the entrances and exits are that the last thing i want to do is to lasso the script with a low budget mm -hmm. method or with a high budget method but i love magic and i love stage magic and so just in talking with different the friends that are professional magicians there you know there were just 10 different ways to do the each effect the question was how much could we pay and would it work <laughs> yeah like uh, oh here's one way we could do it but there's another way that's a little bit more economical way of doing it and it's not quite the same, but it works uh, just as well. Oh yeah, and then there would be the beautiful moments where the where the beautiful the where the perfect one is also the cheapest. <laughs> but yeah, we found most of them didn't quite work. <laughs> the the aspiration was there. Yeah, and and where where did that whole concept come from to include magic? I mean, magic was never a part of Sherlock Holmes. He was all about science and reasoning and logic and deducing things from the facts what was your instinct about i think you called it black art magic yeah i mean what was your instinct yeah to put black art magic and mix it with sherlock holmes magic at that period in the world as you know kind of links to the edison stories in that the world was becoming electric and so the magic and the miracles were dying to the explanations of science at the same time, there were people that were holding on to the impossible, um, like um, there were spiritualists, like Conan Doyle's wife, who were saying you could talk to the dead. Mm. And it was a time of collision between what people knew was possible and when, when scientific things seemed magical. It was the time of Houdini and Thurston and Carter and Keller and all of these incredible stage magicians who were traveling around using black art magic, which is essentially just like if you cover someone in a black sheet and they're stand against a black sheet of the same color and you shine the lights right, they disappear. Uh -huh. You can't see them, but they can just by dropping the sheet suddenly seem to appear. But it's a very inexpensive, low-tech solution to have a high-scale, incredible magical effect. Houdini and Conan Doyle were best friends until it came to a head over, you know, this subject. And I think the story of mysterious circumstances deals with, you know, what's possible and what's impossible. Sherlock is always, and the significance of Sherlock as a character is someone who relies on facts and evidence. And then what that means is it's at the deficit of emotion and feelings. And so you can look at a character like Richard Lancelin Green, who's, you know, the world's biggest super fan of Sherlock Holmes in the quote unquote present, and then say that his love of the, the world's, you know, most frosty uh, surgeon like hero has perhaps colored his own experience and chance at a kind of real emotion or has it at all. So were you a Sherlock Holmes fan before this? My father was enormous hmm. fan, like, uh, you know, a hundred books about Sherlock Holmes. And, <laughs> wow. and uh, you know, he had the deer stalker and the pipe on Halloween. <laughs> but uh, I, I'd read a couple of the stories in advance, but it wasn't until I read David Grant's piece 
that I suddenly was captivated by the whole the whole world of it. So then did you have to do a like a ton of research? Oh yeah. For example, I, I I'm just learning for the first time about the Irregulars and the Doylians and the Sherlockians and all of these different groups that were fan groups or some called themselves science groups. And I'm a much older man than you are, and I never even heard of these people. So you must have done like a ton of research to have included them in this play in a very interesting and accurate way. The conflict with each other and they're arguing back and forth and the characters... I mean, that is based on the truth of it, right? I mean, they were in conflict and arguing. So where did it come from? It was a ton of research. I, I feel like, you know, this is I, probably going to be wrong, but like oh, there have been almost no no, no, per, no fictional character written more books about than, than Sherlock. And a lot of them are just incredible primers that go, you know, to go very, very deep into Sherlock is not even to go, you know, 10, 10 leagues under the ocean. It goes really deep. It becomes a sport. And to read, uh, there, you get a lot of the, the sense of the history and a lot of the guidance from David Grant's original article. But I was fortunate to meet people that were real Sherlockians and experts and wrote the introductions to the collections that, you know, read my play and circled it 91 places saying, nope, <laughs> that ain't right. Nope. <laughs> you know, more like, more like this, right? you know, and making sure that, that when the characters are arguing, you know, I could get remembrances of Richard Lancelin Green, find out who his real friends were, create composites of them and try to find the truth in the conversation, even if I didn't know what they were struggling with on that day. But try to make sure it doesn't feel like one of these, you know, Google it, drop it and move forward mm -hmm. because, it, you know, God is in the details and details are, you know, is at the heart of Sherlock. Right. And so it would be an information rich play and so, you know, a lot of it was also just your character and going, okay, on the timeline when he stopped writing and his wife was ill, he moved to Switzerland when, what time of year was it, you know, it's that kind of thing. Who lived in the house? Who, what was the name of his doctor? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and the name of his doctor, <laughs> by the way, and I, I know it's not Pinocchio's dad, so no. was it really his name, Geppetto? Was that it? No, that was my giving up on trying to locate their, <laughs> the real name and instead lean into some, maybe something to inform the performance. I see. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was in quotes, and I thought, okay, that's not his real name. That's just yeah, a... Yeah, it's placeholder. I, I'm laughing. I have to tell you that when we did the first reading, months ago, the director turned to all of us and said, this is even funnier than I thought. Okay. <laughs> so now we've sort of taken that direction and that attitude that it's funny, and we're just having a great time uh, trying to make things as funny as possible. And I thank you for that. You know what? Let, let's just move on. I think I've said more than I should have said about mysterious circumstances, but I will just repeat that it's based on a true story about this brilliant scholar of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle, and this scholar is found dead under mysterious circumstances. And that's the premise of the play, and that's, you know, solving that mystery of uh, his death and what happened to the missing documents of Conan Doyle. And that's all I can say. It's a lot of fun, and I'm sure people will enjoy it. So, uh, what are you working on now, Michael? I, I found all sorts of stuff that you are working on or involved in. Are you still adapting Dial M for Murder? Is that still a project? Uh, the Audrey Hepburn bio, is that happening? Dial M for Murder is written, and uh, I should hear back this week if it's, if it's moving forward. Everything goes slowly. I'm working on... And that's a series. Yeah, it's a tell... Yep. That's a series, so it'll probably be on one of the streaming services, I guess. Yeah, if it goes that far, it would be on on one of the streamers. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a, a limited series about the magicians Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. And uh, writing a new, a new play, a new musical, and um, a movie about the life of Jim Henson. Oh, now that now that I didn't know and I didn't find that in the research. That sounds great. 
Are these commissioned pieces? Did somebody come to you and say, I assume that the Dial M for Murder thing, somebody approached you about that. Yes. And I'm assuming that perhaps the Audrey Hepburn biopic was also, you were approached by someone or you were commissioned? Yeah, those are projects that existed prior to my joining. Someone who had, for instance, the title, um, the property and the play, Dial M for Murder movie mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. And then some of the other ones, usually in theater, will not have, uh, well, sometimes they'll have underlying material, but those will just be things that I start because I want to. And then, you, you know, you kind of see where they go. And and California pays for New York, and <laughs> and I move right. try to move forward, <laughs> not get sucked into the in into the octopus of Hollywood forever because plays like mysterious circumstances are too much fun. Uh, let me ask you a really practical question from a writer's point of view. You have all of these projects. How do you divide up your time? How do you decide between, I mean, don't tell me you wake up in the morning and say, okay, it's uh, five to nine and then I'm going to work on this. And at 10.50, I'm going to work on that. At 11 o'clock, I go to this. And then 12.50, I do dial M. And, and how do you determine what the day is like? It'll be that it'll be that way. I'm a writer that 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 requires deadlines. Ah, me too. Luckily, very regimented. Very regimented. I need someone yelling at me. Yes. You know, if it's one of the musicals is a commission and there's another writer involved, so if I don't write, it slows the thing down for the other person, which isn't very nice. And you know, also the theater goes where is a draft. If it's a movie, that's someone has commission. They'll go, you know, hello. It's been two months, and then I'll have to get into overdrive and write. But if it's something that's self-motivated, it's important about create, you know, to create your own deadlines because I'll need them or else it'll just never get done and live in some generalized, uh, you know, idealized version in my head of what it could be. Definitely. I find that I do more and accomplish more and work better if I have a list, if I'm regimented and I, and I check things off and it makes me feel a great sense of accomplishment. There's something very satisfying about checking off that little check mark. Oh, absolutely. On my Apple phone oh, sure. to-do list. <laughs> so finally, what's the thing you're most looking forward to? Of all the projects that you're working on now, what's the thing you're most excited about, most hoping to achieve, or most hoping to see? They're all your children. You're proud of all of them. But you're really especially excited about one, maybe? Yeah, and and the truth is, it's mysterious circumstances. I was I was I was really surprised and honored that you guys got in touch, um, and were I don't even know how you got the the putt plays and published. It's not licensed because that first production at the Geffen was the only production of a pretty complicated, you know, sometimes convoluted play with an odd idea at the center um and mm -hmm. we we're going to be doing a workshop of it on the west end in london in sherlock's you know backyard hmm. either later this year or early next year and if that goes well then it would be a, a west end run how cool of the show so my answer is i'm excited to keep working on mysterious circumstances well, that sounds great. I, I, I hope, and I don't even know if this is even possible, but I wish you could come to town and see it. it won't be a high budget. We're a very 90, small 90-seat 90 theater, small stage, dealing with all the magic and the comings and goings. There's going to be some adjustments, of course, but we're having a lot of fun, and I, I think you'd really enjoy it. I hope you could see it. I don't know if you can or not, but if you can fit it into your schedule, it would be great. I know they'd love to have you. Because I know Scott was very excited when he got a hold of this script. I don't really know how he first heard of it, but I don't remember how he got it. It's fine. I'm glad he did. This is, I want to see it or or if, if someone would confidentially share the, the, just the audio so I can listen to it. It will absolutely inform my rewrite. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a new, I'm a new dad, which makes it difficult to travel to Buffalo. Of course. Um, but, but I love it up there. It's actually where I wrote the current war was at Chautauqua, which is, you know, not too far away. Oh yes. Sure. Not too far away at all. I wish I could, but I would at least like to hear the audio if possible. Well, I'll certainly pass that on and we'll see what we can do if it's at all possible. 
If anybody should hear it, it would be the playwright. I got to hear your performance. <laughs> I would be honored for you to hear it no matter what. Yes, please. Well, Michael, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to talk to you and meet you. You've answered so many questions that I've had in my head for the last several weeks, and I've had a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you, Peter. And it's a pleasure to be on the podcast uh, and among so many of my friends. It is an honor. Thank you. Have a good day, sir. And the best of Thank luck you. with everything. I'm looking forward to more Michael Mitnick pieces. Thank you. And I hope my lines don't trip you up. <laughs> <laughs> Not so far, but we'll see. <laughs> Make them better. <laughs> Not likely. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Seventeen. Yes, 17, and there's actually 18 weeks, and then if you get to the playoffs, there's another 20 or 30. I'm not really very sure yet. Oh, never mind. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Mitnick. Uh, the young man is a uh, terrific writer, and I thought we learned a lot. Now, if you don't know any more about the story of Mysterious Circumstances at this point, I'm just going to fill you in a little bit because uh, Richard Lancelin Green is the world's foremost expert on Sherlock Holmes. And suddenly, while he's pursuing some missing documents from Arthur Conan Doyle, he dies under mysterious circumstances. And that's all I can tell you right now without giving away the whole plot. But I will uh, tell you that, yes, Sherlock Holmes himself and Dr. John Watson do make an appearance. So go to the website. Go to RLTP's website, roadlesstraveledproductions.org. Get your tickets for this really fascinating, fun, magical performance of the play Mysterious Circumstances, running through October 16th. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with another exciting episode of Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pete Pomisano.